Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us. Each week, we invite authors, mentors, friends of ours who have an inspiring message, who are living their life well. And so our goal is to learn and grow, and we want to invite you to do the exact same thing with us. So hope you're ready. Let's dive right in. On today's episode, we're talking with one of the teaching pastors at New Life Church, Daniel Grothy, about the lost art of mentorship, which he unpacks in his latest book, Chasing Wisdom. Daniel shares firsthand how the power of mentorship changed his life through his friend and mentor, Eugene Peterson. He became the guy that showed me that pastoral ministry over the long haul was possible. He became the icon that like those people in front of you who show you the way, who give you an imagination for what a life of a long obedience in the same direction could look like. And so that for me was the beginning of a, a journey toward, you know, it's possible to make it in a crazy world. You know what I love about Daniel? Uh, his story is wildly crazy and powerful, and God was in it the whole way. During our time today, he talks about how he was on the ground when his church went through one of the biggest scandals in really U.S. history, yeah. and he was just a young pup on staff of this church. And then not that long after, he was there when a shooter came on campus, and he was right there in the lobby around the corner. He talks about the entire ordeal and how that changed his life, how that impacted him, and how it ultimately he sought after chasing wisdom and people in his life who could help guide him through those rough seasons. Loved our conversation, loved our time with Daniel, loved this guy's heart. We got the chance to meet him in Colorado Springs and uh, he is the real deal. So guys, get ready. Here is Daniel Grothy. Well, Mr. Grothy, welcome to the show, man. We're glad you're here. Glad to be here. Live it well. You guys do good work. I'm honored to be here today. We are, oh, thank you. We are trying. Yeah. You know, it was such a gift to get to hang with you. Gosh, I don't know. What was it? Six, seven months ago and hear a little bit of your story. But for those listening right now, when someone says, hey, Mr. Grothy, who are you? What's your story? What do you do? How do you answer that? I'm 37 years old. I'm a pastor in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Been here 15 years. Married to Lisa for 15 years. We have three kids, Lillian, Wilson, and Wakely, who are 12, 10, and 8. And I'm a pastor's kid, you know, in church six, seven times a week from the day I was born, thinking that every little kid was doing that. <laughs> so I'm a son of the church, a former college athlete, love to move around, get outside. Uh, so that's a bit of who I am, pastor, son of the church, husband, father, writer. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you always know you wanted to be a pastor? Because, you know, people who grew up pastors, kids, they either go one way or the other. It sounds right. like you went, you know, in the in the footsteps of your father. But I love how my parents raised us because they've both been pastors for 44 years. And it was never the family business. It was never, okay, this is what I've done. Now you need to grow up and do it and, mm -hmm. you know, jump off my shoulders. It wasn't that. But what my parents did was they brought us along into their lives and I know a lot of pastor's kids who hate it because they felt like their parents drug them along into their work, but never let them put their hands on it, never told them why this mattered, never showed them the beautiful life that they'd been invited into. And my parents did the exact opposite. It wasn't their job that we had to sort of find our way into. It was a family call together. And we all had a chance to practice, to put our hands on it. And so because of that, we never knew any different. And my parents didn't give us anything to push off of. 
a lot of times pastors, you know, they're one way publicly and then they go home and they're, they're different. And so kids just go, I don't, I don't believe that. I'm seeing the, the dichotomy here. So my parents didn't give us anything to push off of. So I think in my sophomore year of college, that's when I realized, you know what? Yes, my parents have done this. But I think I'm actually made to do this. I'm not doing this because it's a family business. I'm doing this because of gifting, wiring, and grace. So, yeah. That's, that's awesome. So you step into this world of pastor. We're going to jump right in. You've, you've yeah. written this brand new book about chasing wisdom. And it's a real amazing story of your journey and how people can chase wisdom in all facets of your life, but you talk specifically how you really found wisdom in the middle of crisis, and you kind of came a bunch through a bunch of different pieces of crisis, and I want you to talk about a couple of those stories, because you kind of have this interesting story as a pastor that you've been at one place for basically your entire pastoral career, but at that one place, it might as well be like three or <laughs> ten different lifetimes <laughs> of what you've had to walk through. So yeah. I know that's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to let you tell the story as you see fit. Yeah. So Lisa and I got married 15 years ago, 22 years old, went to Mexico for a week, came back to Tulsa, put everything we had in a short Penske truck and drove to Colorado Springs. Uh, hired out here. 12 days after we're married, we start at New Life. We were on top of the world, not just as a couple. Yes, we were excited to be married. We got one car, one little apartment, uh, enough money to pay the rent. And we're so we're on top of the world there. But we come to this church that is just kicking butt and taking names. We were like, yeah, so people don't know. I want to stop you for a second. Let's talk about, I mean, you know, Right now, if you're in the church world, you're a Christian, you know some of the big names and the buzzwords or whatever. But for New Life, where you yeah. guys were, what was the year that this was happening? And what was happening around the church at the time? 2005. And we were like the 90s bulls at this moment. Totally. <laughs> we just couldn't lose, you know. Right. And so our senior pastor was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, which was a 30 million member representative body headquarters in Washington, D.C., when Congress or the Senate were debating legislation on, say, same-sex marriage or, uh, you know, other issues, they would call us and say, what does the church think? So we would go out there and hold press releases. Ariel Sharon, the prime minister of I Israel, wanted to meet with our pastor. Mel Gibson, when he released The Passion of the Christ, flew in on a private jet to our church to stand in front of 3,000 pastors and say, here's the movie, tell the world about it, it's going to change the world. Uh, George W. Bush, president of the United States, got on a Skype call and Skyped into our pastor's conference. I mean, any call we wanted to be on, we were on. Tom Brokaw and Barbara Walters and every major news media outlet was coming to our place to say, tell us what it means to be the church and to do church. So we were really high on the hog and just going for it until the bottom fell out. Our senior pastor uh, was caught in a scandal and overnight he's fired. Uh, the church is on internationally on every front page. So we were in the news media for all the right reasons before, and now we're in the news media for all the wrong reasons. We discover in that moment that we're $26 million in debt as a church. The economy tanks the next year, 2006, 2007. We fire 44 people overnight. Uh, so we are reeling. We've lost. Okay, you're one of the cheap ones, right? You're the right. <laughs> right, let's keep the cheap youth pastor guy around. Go around for a thousand a month. <laughs> Basically, a glorified intern. Uh -huh. no, so exactly, I was I was not on the chopping block because of that. But 
lost our senior pastor, 26 million in debt, fire 44 people. We finally get a new pastor 10 months later from Dallas, Texas, Gateway Church. And we're starting to rebuild trust slowly. Uh, he's starting to know our names. We're starting to know his name. And you know when it is, the wind is coming at your face. And now all of a sudden the wind starts to shift to your back. And you're starting to be carried along by the Spirit's grace and, and believe again and hope again and trust again. All that's happening. And Sunday morning, it's there's a little bit of snow on the ground, December 9th, 2007. And Dr. Jack Hayford's in the house preaching, you know, a legend sort of in, in his world and 77 years old. We just finished two services. It's one o'clock and I'm standing at the end of the children's hallway and, and families like ours are getting their kids and going out to the cars to go to lunch. And so I'm standing at the end of the children's hallway and all of a sudden I hear the sound that you never expect to hear anywhere, let alone in church, which is the sound of ba 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 and a man had stormed onto our campus with an AR-15 assault rifle, a thousand rounds of ammunition, two handguns on his hips, and he's spraying bullets everywhere indiscriminately. And kids and parents are diving in bathrooms and hiding in, in Sunday school rooms and diving behind the check-in counter. I mean, it's pandemonium. And he's racing down our children's hallway. He's just killed two teenage girls in the parking lot, 16 and 18 and shot their dad up. Uh, it's a beautiful family who are some of my dear friends, four girls, and all of a sudden half of their girls are dead in a moment. Dad is shot in the stomach, bleeding out. He runs in and a security guard, five foot four woman, races down the hall straight toward him with a pistol, dives in a little cavity of a door and reaches out and shoots him in the leg and he falls down and then he ends up taking his life in our children's hallway. So we've got a double murder suicide in our parking lot uh, now in our building and people are, we've just lost, what in the world is going on here? We've lost our senior pastor. We fired everyone. Now we've got this. And I was sure that we were done. This is the moment, you know, put a fork in us. It's over. And three days later, we had a Wednesday night service and I was sure no one would come. And I go into the building and there's 10,000 people that show up that night, standing room only. People start raising their hands, singing a song that our worship leader had just written called We Will Overcome. By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, everyone overcome. Jeremy Camp made it famous, you know. But we sing it that night, three days after the double murder-suicide. But here we are at church now going, what does it look like? to move forward. And so this is a, a moment of crisis that our church found itself in. And that's where I reached out to a man called Eugene Peterson that changed my life. Wow. I mean, I love hearing you tell that story. We were youth pastors at that time as well. And I remember hearing about it because our bookstore was filled with new life resources. I mean, you're right. It was the place right. to look at. And I just have to ask, when scandal like that happens, let's just go there first. Yep. When you encounter someone who you've looked up to, who's mentored you, who's poured into you, and something like that happens, that can be a game changer for a lot of people. That can be an opportunity to just peace out on the whole thing. Yep. Um, talk about how you chose in those moments to stay on the course that God had you on and to choose to be faithful, even though you had every reason in the world to jump ship? Well, uh, sadly, I had already encountered it uh, in my high school years with another pastor. 
And so my parents in those years walked me through that and cared for me. You know, they, they, we talked about the difficult stuff as a 15, 16 year old kid. My parents shepherded me in those times and they listened to me. And there were moments where I said, you know, if he can't do it, how can I do it? You know, he's a man of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm a teenage kid and they would talk me through that and help me reason through that and show me how I can make it. So when this happens to me as a 23, 24 year old pastor, with the guy who hired me and who was a hero and he's gone overnight. This is the moment where pastors become pastors. This is the moment when a church needs to be led through. This is not a moment for the under shepherds to scatter and leave the flock alone. So this is actually the day you're made for. Mm-hmm. And when, when crisis hits, when life washes ashore on you in ways you never expected, um, Proverbs 24, 10, like if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Like these are the moments where saints are made. Yeah. <laughs> these yeah. are the moments where, where the people of God rise up. And so it's not easy. And it was it heartbreaking? Absolutely. Did I lay in bed at night and cry multiple times? Absolutely. Did I look at my wife and go, are we going to make it? Absolutely. But you show back up and you walk back into the church and you realize that this is the moment when the congregation needs to be led. My phone, my phone was ringing. Hey, we'd love to hire you. We'd love to bring you back home or we'd love to do this. Or why don't you, you know, bless your heart. And something, it was like a holy defiance that said, like, forget you. Like, you're going to try to draw me away from the congregation that needs me now more than ever. No way. So I I think you just realize and you plan beforehand that when it hits, like this is the time to dig in your heels and to press into the moment, not run away and take the easy road. I love that. All right. We're going to shift gears to what happened after all of these incredible crises happened. You walk through it. God leads you through. But I'm sure your head's spinning. And he led you to another unlikely hero that you probably didn't see coming. But tell us the story of how you encountered one of our favorite people in the world, all of us, Eugene. If you can hear in her voice, there's a smile. (laughs) There's like there's a smile in her voice and in her words. Just giddy. I'm such a huge fan. So I am just dying to hear how that whole thing unraveled for you. So I went to Goodwill on a Monday morning after, you know, right in the middle of this crisis. Monday morning, pastors are like subhuman. <laughs> so I'm like trying to recover. It's my Sabbath. And so we, my wife and I go buy stuff there all the time and we redo furniture, whatever. We go over to the used bookshelf sh- and I see this book on the shelf and it says The Contemplative Pastor. And it said Eugene H. Peterson. And I thought, I think he translated the Message Bible. I didn't know he wrote anything else. So I pull it off the shelf, 99 cents, go up to front, buy it, go home. It's Monday. I got time. So I read, I, and I never do this, cover to cover, 171 pages. I could not put this book down. It was like someone was telling me the future that I knew God had made for me. Someone was describing to me the life of a faithful pastor that I had seen my parents live, but I had never read it on the written page. So I just lost it. And I thought, I've got to write this guy a letter and tell him, very least, tell him thank you. But I'm going to ask him if he'll have me. Uh, and so I write him a letter. Here's what just happened at my church in the last year and a half. Uh, we lost our pastor, double murder, suicide. I just read your book. Something shifted in me. Can I please spend a day with you? So I send it to Nav Press to our friend Don Pape. I don't know where Eugene lives or how old he is, or I don't have any connection. So I write a letter, put a cover letter on it to Nav Press and say, Dear Nav Press, please get this to Eugene. And I knew they wouldn't. 
<laughs> I just knew they wouldn't. Two weeks later, I go to the mailbox and there's that long skinny envelope with the chicken scratch cursive that our grandparents write with. And it says E. Peterson, Lakeside, Montana, 59922. And I thought, he wrote me back. So I open it up and this letter, it's like holy ground, you know, like I'm trembling, I'm, my heart's beating super fast. And it says, Dear Daniel, first sentence, yes, I would be willing to spend a day with you here in Montana, period. Second sentence, but not so fast. <laughs> and he said, I want you to write a three-page paper on what is pastor and a three-page paper on what is church to see if we even have enough common ground to begin a conversation. And then he proceeds to rip me to shreds. He assumes I tell him about my church and he, he rips the mega church to shreds. And he says, I don't think you could spend a day with me and make it worth much in your context. So write me your papers. And then he said, and if you come, I don't want a touristy visit, period. The peace of our Lord, Eugene. And so he threw down the gauntlet. It was, he it was 76 at the time. And, and it was what a sage does. Like, okay, if you want to engage, we can engage, but it's going to cost you everything. I'm not going to give you a cheap yes. I'm not going to invite you out next week and put on coffee for you and make it simple and sweet because Eugene knew that at this formative time in my pastoral ministry, if he gives me a cheap yes, then I don't have to rise up. I don't have to work for it. It doesn't have to cost me anything. So I told him at the end of his life, I ended up making 10 trips over 10 years to his place and spending, you know, staying in his house and hikes and kayaking and all this stuff. And I said to him the last time I was with him, I said, Eugene, the most important four words you ever said to me were, but not so fast. Because in that time, I, I ended up reading 30 books. I wrote those papers. I was challenged. I rose up. You, you signaled to me that if we're going to do this, we're going to really go for it. And so, um, yeah, he became the guy that showed me that pastoral ministry over the long haul was possible. He became the icon that, and I use this in like the Greek New Testament sense, not in like the LeBron James celebrity culture sense. LeBron's great. But what I'm talking about is like in the, in the Greek New Testament, Paul talks about the icons, like those people in front of you who show you the way, who give you an imagination for what a life of a long obedience in the same direction could look like. And so that for me was the beginning of a, a journey toward, you know, it's possible to make it in a crazy world. Well, I mean, gosh, what an amazing story. And I'm so glad that you got that. And again, I think there's a level, a, a healthy level of jealousy that's, that's happening <laughs> well, here. Well, you guys got to do the final interview with him, didn't you? We, we got to do the final interview with, with Jan. We got to do the final yeah. interview with his lovely wife, Jan. And she was so fantastic. And yep. she was so enamored with Chris. It was the cutest thing. <laughs> well, that gorgeous face. I know. Her. She just <laughs> loved Chris. It was so hilarious. But she was such a, it was such an honor and a blessing to meet her and to hear their story of love and faithfulness. You know, I mean, that's what we're all going for, right? Long obedience in the same yes. direction. Yes. Um, well, I love that story. And I want to I hear about Chasing Wisdom. Tell us yes. how God led you to write this and what you're hoping people take away from it whenever they read it. My thesis is we live in a day that celebrates youth and beauty and celebrity, and we have forsaken our sages. 
-hmm. we have sent our elder statesmen to the to the golf course and to the cruise boat and we've said your time here is done go enjoy the last 15 20 years of your life we don't need you anymore and to that i say garbage mm -hmm. uh, these people at 65 have just now gotten to the place where they have more time than they've ever had they have more wisdom than they've ever had if they've lived well some people if they've lived in unwisdom for 65 years they've never been stupider <laughs> <laughs> But for the people who have arrived at this moment with wholesomeness and with vitality, they're just getting started. And I think that we ought to teach our young ones how to chase the wisdom of the elders, how to go when life hits the fan. Do you have people to call when when the, the bottom falls out? Do you know who to reach out to who can show you the way? Because these folks think about someone who's 85 years old right now living through World War Two living through Vietnam War, Korea, living through economies rising and falling. I write about a, a lady in this book, great grandma Cora. She was 107, my friend's great grandma. And he was given the assignment of asking uh, from his junior um, English teacher, go ask someone who's old, what was the greatest time of your life? Greatest decade. So he goes and interviews his great grandma Cora, who's 107. And she says, the greatest time of my life easily was the Great Depression. And he said, what? What are you talking about? He said it's the great. She said it was the Great Depression because of the simplicity and the community and the joy. And she said in the Great Depression, we actually had to live how God made us to live. We needed each other. We had to know each other's children's names. We had to open our fridges for each other when someone was out of milk. And so you can only hear those stories from someone who has logged miles with God, from someone who's paid attention, from someone who's been trained through trial and error. So I've written Chasing Wisdom because I think we are the poorer for having sent our sages and our elders away to the fringes uh, and just tried to live within our own little peer group. So my story of writing Eugene, I use it sort of as a provocation to say to people, who are you talking to? Who are you reaching out to? Who are you allowing to shape your life? Who are you looking up to as an icon to show you the way? So talk back to me there. What, what are you hearing? What, what, what stands out in that? Yeah. Well, I mean, one, I, I love this 107-year-old lady named Cora for sure. But, and I, and I want to hear, and I'm sure your book is littered with amazing stories. But I'm thinking like just from a practical perspective, somebody who's listening going like, okay, how does one search out these sages? How does one approach a conversation or even institute that? I mean, you did your, – your example, Eugene, was great. But help us, like what's a, yeah. a question you ask someone you're sitting across from them or how do they even initiate a conversation like that? Yeah, well, that's a great point. First, I don't want to uh, mystify this and act like there are a bunch of Eugene Petersons. Like for every one Eugene Peterson I've had, which is exactly one, I have about 100 other people who are school teachers, who are mechanics, who are car salesmen, who are financial planners. One, I'll just tell you a story as a way of provoking people's imaginations. There's a guy in our church who's 92, Mr. Bob Staten. He's been married. He was married 56 years to his wife, Lorraine, before she died in 2009. He's got children and grandchildren and great grandchildren who all think he's the greatest thing that ever happened on planet Earth. He's still playing golf. He's going out on walks every day. He just drove to Dallas last week to go visit his daughter while she's in lockdown. I'm like, Bob, that's an 800 mile journey. You shouldn't do that. He's kicking butt and taking names. So what I do is every quarter I take Bob out to Cracker Barrel and I buy him eggs and bacon and I come with my legal pad full of questions. I'll say, Bob, talk to me about marriage. 
What are some of the best things you ever did in marriage? Tell me what you'd stay away from. What, what would you warn me about as a 37-year-old in this season of my life? Because you were 37 once. Tell me, Bob, about saving money. Tell me, Bob, about trips with the kids and making memories with the kids. And I go home that night and I lay in bed with Lisa and I read her my notes from the legal pad. And I'll say, Bob said this and Bob said that. And he told me this story. And, and it's helping us make decisions about our future. And so I, I just want people to know that there are people that God has planted all around you who have lived well. I mean, this is the name of your live it well. Mm -hmm. So find those people who have lived it well and come ready, honor them, dignify them, show them respect, ask them questions. And what you do is you just prime the pump with good questions and you watch over time and those stories will come out. Those nuggets will come out and you will be the richer for it. I love that. So, so I would love to hear your definition, um, you know, to give people a good baseline. How would you define living it well? Someone who lives their life well. You get to the end of your life and the people closest to you will say the greatest things about you. So I do funerals all the time. And one of the heartbreaks of doing funerals is watching people in the back of the room walk up to the podium and say the greatest things about the person. And I look at the front row and the people who are closest to this person are going, I wish I knew that guy. Mm. And I think you start with the smallest concentric circle of what God has given you and you sow seed there and you, you work the field and you bless and you show love and you pray and you rejoice and then God will give you more and then you can move further outward. But getting to the end of your life as an 85 year old say, and being with the same person, that's what I love about Eugene, he and Jan, after 60 years, they were just symbiotic. They knew each other in and out. There's a deep intimacy that you can't fake in 20 years. So your kids, your grandkids loving you, uh, a, a good name, Proverbs 22, one, a good name is to be desired more than riches. So not showing up with deep pockets, but an empty soul, but showing up at the end. And if you got money, fine. But the, the, the most important things that prove that you're rich, all being there, rich in relationship, rich in trust with God, rich in intimacy, and rich with a good name, having lived well over the long haul. That's so love beautiful. It. I love that. I would agree completely. Um, well, Daniel, this has been so fun. Uh, we like to close out every single show with three questions. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Um, the first one is, what's a book that's changed your life? I know you're a big reader. You like to read the dead people. I do too. <laughs> just, just one that's absolutely changed your life. A book that has changed my life. Gosh, well, I, I would have to say the contemplative pastor because sure. it was like the fault line yeah. where things opened up for me. Another one is called Into the Silent Land. I just happen to have it here right nice. on my okay. It's a small little book on prayer, Into the Silent Land, contemplative life. I, I'm a busy, active, extroverted guy, but this book right here helps me turn inward and slow down and get centered so that when I go out, I've got something to give. So that, that would be a book that's really marked me into the silent land. I love that. All right. The second question is what's a habit that's changed your life? Exercise. If I do not exercise, I am the worst person on the planet to be around. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm funky. Um, so getting out, I, we take a walk, a long walk every day, 45 minutes or an hour, at least one. And Lisa can tell she, by looking me in the eyes if I've done that 
if, if we've done that. And if I'm if I'm funky and if I haven't exercised, I'll walk in the door from work and she'll say, why don't you uh, run to the gym or why don't you head on out? And but so once I get those endorphins released and get with the Lord, get silent and get my body moving, I'm back. So regular exercise. And I find that every sage that I've ever been with, is someone who's lived an active life. These are not people who've gone to gyms. Most of them, think about it. Your grandparents, they never had a gym membership. They just moved. They worked. They used their body. So uh, staying active, I think, is something that keeps me sane. Okay. And the last one is, what advice would you give to the younger you? What, what advice would I give to the younger me? Wow. That's a great question. Um slow down, be patient. I, I, I mentioned it to you earlier, but, uh, but right when we got on the call, uh, it only took Eugene Peterson 65 years to become an overnight success. So don't try to cram a rich and beautiful life into 30 years and then be mad that it all didn't happen in the first 30 years. Slow down, let it build, let decades build on decades. And if you live well, if you if you do it right over the long haul, you'll show up with sort of a compounding interest of a beautiful life when you're 85. So slow down and let those decades build beautifully in a way that time can work for you. That's good. Long obedience in the same direction. Obedience. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you, follow you, all that good stuff? Yeah, danielgrothy.com, G-R-O-T-H-E. And then on uh, social media, Mr. M-R-D-A-N-I-E-L-G-R-O-T-H-E, Mr. Daniel Grothy. Awesome. Well, we're cheering you on, man. We're excited for this book. It's just, you know, and just excited for you as a human. You know, it's been really great to just spend a little bit of time with you and watch from a distance and um, and see the legacy of Eugene Peterson uh, living on through guys like you. So, so thanks okay. for, for doing it. You guys are doing beautiful work. I'm honored to know you. Your five kids are going to rise up and far outstrip you. So keep it going. You're living it well. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening today. There's a lot going on in our world right now. And we just want you to know that we're praying for you. And just hope that in the midst of all of this insanity, that we can find Jesus, find hope, and lean on him and his word. And we'd love to hear how we can pray for you and how these episodes are encouraging you in this season that we're in right now and honestly, any other way that we might be able to help you in this time. You can hit us up over on our website at letsliveitwell.com, leave us a review on iTunes, or come find us on social media. This week, Jenny and I spent some time just kind of sharing what's going on in our life over on our Instagram and over on our Facebook page, uh, things that we've found that are working in the midst of this unprecedented season and things that maybe aren't working. So we'd love to hear what's going on in your world. And as always, guys, you can find all the info for today's episode, all the links mentioned, all the books mentioned in our show notes over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. Well, all right, y'all, that's a wrap for today's episode. We will catch you next week. We're going to close it out like we do every single time. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it well. well.